As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Will future language models and their extensions be conscious? In developing conscious AI may lead to harms to human beings, may also lead to harms to these AI systems themselves. So I think um, there needs to be a lot of reflection about these ethical questions. This is a presentation by David Chalmers, as well as questions posed to him, as well as me and Susan Schneider, by you, the in-person audience, earlier this year at Mindfest Florida, spearheaded by Susan Schneider. All of the talks on that AI and consciousness conference are in the description. I'll list some of them aloud. For instance, there's one by Anand Vaidya. This was his presentation on moving beyond non-dualism and integrating Indian frameworks into the AI discussion. Ben Gortzel also appeared giving his talk on AGI timelines. You should also know that Ben Gortzel recently came on with Yosha Bach for Theolocution, and that's in the description as well. There's Claudia Pesos, there's Garrett Mint, and Carlos Montemayor on Petri Minds and what it takes to build non-human consciousness. There's also a Stephen Wolfram talk on AI, ChatGPT, and so on. We're also going to be releasing the second from talk as is considered by many of the people there his best why because it was aimed at high schoolers even the lay public and stephen does a great job at explaining the connection between ai and physics with his hypergraph slash ruliad approach that one's taking a bit of time unfortunately because the audio became messed up and so what we have to do is reconstruct it using ai my name is Kurt J. Mungle, and this is a podcast called Theories of Everything, where I use my background in math and physics to investigate theories of everything, such as loop quantum gravity and string theory and even Wolfram's. But as well, we touch on consciousness and what role does consciousness have in fundamental law? Is it an emergent property? Is it something that's more? If you like those subjects as well as what you saw on screen, then feel free to subscribe. We've been having issues monetizing the channel with sponsorship, so if you'd like to contribute to the continuation of Theories of Everything, then you can donate through PayPal. PayPal, Patreon, or through cryptocurrency. Your support goes a long way in ensuring the longevity and quality of this channel. Thank you. Links are in the description. Enjoy this episode with David Chalmers, and then the subsequent panel with Susan Schneider and myself and David Chalmers. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started. Me? No, it's no, fine, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, uh, Susan, for this amazing MindFest 2023. And uh, thanks so much to Stephen and Misha and Simone and everybody else who's been involved in 
putting together this, uh, this conference. It's been quite a memorable event already. Um, yeah, so Susan just asked me to give a brief overview of this uh, um, paper I wrote on could a large language model be conscious. I gave this at the, uh, the NeurIPS conference, the big machine learning conference in late, uh, in late November and subsequently wrote it up. Maybe some people will have gotten as far as having read the first, uh, first few pages, but I thought I'd just uh, summarize some of, the, uh, some of the ideas. I actually started out um, when I was a grad student like 30 plus years ago working on neural networks back in the early 90s in Doug Hofstadter's AI lab. I uh, did a bunch of stuff related to, uh, to models of language, like active-passive transformations, models of the evolution of learning. And then I kind of got distracted by thinking about consciousness for a little while. But so it's very cool to have this intersection of issues about uh, neural networks and machine learning and consciousness um, become so much to the fore in the, last, uh, in the last year or so. I mean, well, I guess one uh, high point of interest was this big brouhaha last, uh, last June, where uh, uh, Blake Lemoyne, an enger engineer at Google, said he detected sentience in one of Google's AI systems, Lambda 2. Um, maybe it had a soul, maybe it had, had consciousness, and this, uh, this led to a whole lot of uh, skepticism, a whole lot of discussion. Um, Google themselves said, our team, including ethicists and technologists, has reviewed Blake's concerns, and we've informed him that the evidence doesn't support his claims. There's no evidence that Lambda was sentient, lots of evidence against it. This was already very interesting to me. I thought, okay, evidence, good. Uh, what is? Now, they didn't actually lay out the evidence. I'm just curious, what, it, what was the evidence um, in favor of his claims, and what was the evidence against it? And really, this talk is in a way, was in a way just a way to try and make sense of, um, of those questions, evidence for, evidence against. Asking questions like, are current language models conscious? Could future language models be conscious? Also, could future extensions of language models be conscious? As when we combine language models, say, with, uh, with perceptual mechanisms or with action mechanisms and a body or with database lookup and so on. And what challenges need to be overcome on the path to conscious machine learning systems at each point trying to examine the reasons. Um, so here I'll just briefly go over clarifying some of the issues, looking briefly at some of the reasons in favor, looking at some of the reasons against, and draw conclusions about where we are now and about possible roadmaps um, between where we are now and machine consciousness. Um, so as I understand the term consciousness, we've already had a lot of discussion of this at the conference, especially, uh, especially yesterday morning. So um, the ground has been prepared. These words like consciousness and sentience get used in many different ways. At least as I understand them, I basically mean subjective experience. A being is conscious if there's something it's like to be that being. That is, if it has subjective experience. Yesterday, I think it was Anand talking about Nagel's what is it like to be a bat? Uh, the question now is, what is it like? Is there anything it's like 
to be a large language model or future, uh, future extensions of large language models. So consciousness includes many different kinds, many different varieties. You can divide it into types in various ways. I find it useful to divide it into a few categories. Sensory experience, uh, like seeing and hearing. Affective experience, the experience of value. Things, um, you know, feeling good or bad, like pain or pleasure. Feeling emotions, like happiness and sadness. Cognitive experiences, like the experience of thinking. Agentive experience, experience of acting and deciding, like an agent. And all of these actually can be combined with self-consciousness, awareness of oneself. Although I take self-consciousness just to be one, one kind of consciousness. Awareness, consciousness of the world may be present even in simple systems that don't have, uh, don't have self-consciousness. And some of these components may be more apt to be had by language models than others. I think it's very important to distinguish consciousness from Intelligence. Intelligence, I understand roughly in terms of behavior and reasoning that guides behavior. Intelligence is roughly, you know, being able to, to do means end reasoning in order to be able to achieve multiple ends in many different environments. Ultimately a matter of behavior. Um, consciousness comes apart from that. I think, you know, consciousness may be present in systems to fairly low on the, uh, on the intelligence scale. Certainly doesn't require anything like human level intelligence. Um, good chance that worms are conscious or fish are conscious. Well, short. Uh, so the issue of consciousness isn't the same as the issue of human level artificial general intelligence. Consciousness is subjective. Um, you might ask why consciousness matters. I mean, it would be nice you know, to say, well, one reason why consciousness matters is consciousness is going to give you all these amazing capacities. Conscious systems will be able to do things that other systems can't do. That may be true, but actually right now we understand the function of consciousness sufficiently badly. There's nothing I can promise you that conscious systems can do that unconscious systems can't do. But one reason, one fairly widely acknowledged reason why it matters is consciousness matters for morality and moral status. If I say an animal, like say a fish, is conscious, if it can suffer, that means in principle it matters how we treat the fish. If it's not conscious, if it can't suffer, and so on, then its consciousness um, doesn't matter. And that again, we were talking about, uh, talking about yesterday. So if an AI system is conscious, suddenly it enters our moral calculations. We have to think about, you know, boy, if the training we're inflicting on a machine learning system actually inflicts suffering, some, a possibility some people have taken seriously, we need to worry about whether we're actually creating a moral catastrophe. By, uh, by training these systems. At the very least, we ought to be thinking about methods of dealing with these uh, AI systems that minimize uh, suffering and other negative experiences. Furthermore, even if conscious AI doesn't suffice for human level AI, maybe it'll just be say fish level or mouse level AI, it'll be one very important step on the road to human level AI, one that brings, you know, um, one that would be very, if we could be confident of consciousness in an AI system, that would be a very significant step. Um, okay, so reasons for and against. So I'll just go over the, summarize a few reasons in favor of consciousness in current um, language models. 
And I put this in the form of asking for a, you know, this is a, gate, a certain kind of request for reasons. I ask a proponent of language models being conscious to articulate a feature X such that language models have X and if also such that if a system has X, it's probably conscious and ideally give good reasons for both of those claims. I'm not sure there is such an X, but you know, a few have been at least articulated. Uh, for Blake Lemoyne, it seemed actually what moved him the most was self-report, the fact that uh, Lambda 2 said, yes, I am a, uh, a sentient system. Let me, uh, what's your sentience and consciousness like? It would explain this. I'm sometimes happy and, and sad. Interestingly, in humans, verbal report is actually um, typically our best guide to consciousness, at least in the case of adults. Claudia was talking about, you know, the cases like infants and animals where we lack verbal report, so you might think we're in a more difficult position. Well, actually, in the case of language models, we have verbal reports. They think, great. Um, they, they, they say they're conscious. We'll, we'll use that as evidence. Unfortunately, as Susan and Ed and others have, uh, have pointed out, um, you know, this evidence is not terribly strong in a context where these language models have been trained on a giant corpus of text from human beings who are, of course, conscious beings and who, uh, who talk about being conscious. Um, so it's fairly plausible that a language model has just learned to, uh, to repeat those claims, at least. So in this special case, uh, um, you know, Susan and Ed's artificial consciousness test is super interesting, which basically look at your reactions to thought experiments about consciousness. But in this special case, where they've been trained on so much text already, I think it carries less weight. Maybe I'll skip over seems consciousness, which is relevant. There's conversation, you know, a lot of people have been very, very impressed by the conversational ability of these recent, uh, these recent uh, systems. I guess ChatGPT was fine-tuned for conversation, unlike, uh, unlike the basic GPT-3 model. And now we have GPT-4, uh, which also appears to have been fine-tuned for conversation. And, you know, the conversational ability is one of the classic criteria for, uh, for thought in AI systems, articulated by Turing back in his 1950 paper on the imitation game. He basically thought if a machine behaved in a way sufficiently indistinguishable from a human, then we might as well say it can think or that it's intelligent. So these language models, I think they've not yet passed the Turing test. Um, you know, anyone who wants to, who's to probe sufficiently well, can find, you know, glitches and mistakes and idiosyncrasies in this system. That said, you know, through interacting, I got access to GPT-4 through interacting with that just the last couple of days, really kind of feels a lot like, I was saying for like a GPT-3, it felt like talking to a smart eight-year-old. I think, you know, GPT-4, it's at least a teenager. Maybe it's even, it's approaching sophisticated, you know, adult in a lot of its, uh, a lot of its conversations. Yes, it makes uh, mistakes. So, you know, one Turing test you might do is ask it questions like, you know, what is the fifth word of this sentence? And apparently it, it always gets this, this kind of thing wrong. It's, it'll say something like fifth. No, actually the fifth word of the sentence was word. Um, or what was the fifth letter of the third word of this sentence? And it'll, it'll, get, it'll get that wrong. Okay, a lot of people will get that wrong too. So that's not a, uh, <laughs> not a guarantee that it's failing the, uh, failing the Turing test, but getting close. I mean, that said, I think conversational ability here is relevant because, not so much in its own right, but because it's a sign of general 
intelligence. If you're able to talk about a whole lot of different domains and you know, play chess and, and code and talk about social situations and, and scientific situations, that suggests general intelligence. And a lot of people have thought there are at least correlations between you know, domain general abilities and consciousness. Abilities that you could only use, information you could only use for certain special purposes um, are not necessarily conscious. But information available for all kinds of different activities and different domains um, are often held to go along with consciousness. So that at least, I think, gives us some basic reasons. I take probably this one as the most serious reason for taking seriously the possibility of consciousness in these systems. That said, you know, I don't think, just looking at the positive evidence, I don't think any of this provides remotely conclusive evidence that language models are conscious, but I do think the impressive general abilities give at least some limited initial support for taking the hypothesis seriously, at least taking it seriously enough to now to look at the reasons against, to see, you know, what are these, uh, everyone says, okay, look, there's all kinds of evidence these systems are not conscious, well, okay, what are those reasons? I think they're worth examining. So, so the flip side of this is to look at the reasons why language models are not conscious. And the challenge here for opponents is articulate a feature X so that language models lack X, and if a system lacks X, it's probably not sentient. And then, again, try and give good reasons for one and two. And here, um, we have six different reasons that I, uh, that I consider in the paper. Um, the first one, which I just consider very briefly, is uh, the idea that consciousness requires biology, carbon-based biology. Um, therefore, a silicon system is not biological um, and lacks consciousness. That would rule out pretty much all AI consciousness, if correct, at least all, um, all silicon-based um, AI consciousness. This one is a really familiar issue in philosophy. It goes back to uh, issues of you know, soul and the, uh, the Chinese room and um, all kinds of, uh, yeah, some very, very well-trodden well debates. I, I'm really here more interested in issues more specific to, uh, to language models, so I'll pass over this one quickly. Um, a more, maybe closer to the bone for, uh, for language models specifically is the issue of having senses and embodiment. A standard language model has nothing like a, or like a human sense, you know, vision and hearing and so on. No sensory processing, so they can't sense, suggests they have no sensory consciousness. Furthermore, they lack a body. Um, if they lack a body, it looks like they can't act. If so, maybe no agentive consciousness. Um, some people have gone on to argue that because of their lack of senses, um, they may not have any kind of genuine meaning or cognition at all. We need senses for grounding the meaning of our thoughts. There's a huge amount to say about this. In fact, I recently um, had, to give my, had to give a talk at the American Philosophical Association and just talk talk completely about this issue. But one way to just to briefly cut this issue off is to look at all of the developing extensions of language models that actually have some forms of sensory processing. For example, GPT-4 is already designed to process images. 
it's what's called a vision language model. And I gather, although this is not yet fully public, that it can uh, process sound files and so on. So it's a multimodal uh, model. This is DeepMind's Flamingo, which is another vision language model. You might say, what about the body? But people are also combining these, uh, these language models with bodies now. Here's, here's Google SACAN, where it actually, a language model controls a physical robot. Or well, here is, um, here is a, um, this is one of DeepMind's model, Mia, which works, controls a virtual body in a virtual world. And that's become a very, a very big thing too. That connects to the issues I'll be talking about later this afternoon about uh, virtual reality and virtual worlds. But we're already moving to a point where I think it's going to be quite standard quite soon for, to have extended language models with sensors and embodiment, which will tend to overcome the objection from lack of sensors and embodiment. Another issue is the issue of world models. Um, there's this famous criticism by Timney uh, Gebru, Emily Bender, and others that uh, language models are stochastic parrots. They just minimize text prediction error. They don't have genuine understanding, meaning, world models, self-models. I mean, there's a lot to this. Again, I take world models to be the, uh, the crucial part of this, of this, uh, this question, because world models are plausibly something which is required for, uh, for consciousness. Um, um, there's actually a lot of interesting work in interpretability recently of actually trying to detect world models in systems. Here's someone trying to detect a world model in, uh, in GBT3 playing Othello, and they actually find some interesting models of the board a slightly more technical issue is uh, the question that uh, these language models are feed-forward systems that lack memory-like internal state of the kinds you find in recurrent networks. Many theories of consciousness say that recurrent processing um, and a certain form of short-term memory is required for consciousness. Um, here's a standard uh, LSTM, a standard recurrent network, whereas transformers are largely, um, largely feed-forward. They've got some quasi-recurrence from the recirculation of inputs and outputs. Um, you know, that said, there's a, I take it there's a, uh, we don't know the architecture of GPT-4. There are rumors that it uh, involves more recurrence than GPT-3. So this also looks like a temporary limitation. Fifth is uh, the question of a global workspace, perhaps the leading theory, the leading scientific theory of consciousness. Claudia talked about it yesterday um, is that consciousness involves this global workspace for connecting many modules in the brain. It's not obvious that large language models have these. On the other hand, it's starting to look like many of these extensions, these multimodal extensions of large language models do have um, something like a global workspace. Here's the perceiver architecture from, uh, from DeepMind, where it looks like uh, they actually developed something, some kind of workspace for integrating information from images, information from audio, information from text, which uh, Ryota Kanai and others have argued behaves quite a lot like a classic global workspace. If you ask me, the, the feature that these many current language models lack that seems most crucial is some kind of unified agency. It looks like these language models can take on many different personas, like actors, or chameleons, yeah, you can get Lambda to say it's sentient, but you can just as easily get it to say it's not sentient. You can get it to, uh, to simulate a, uh, 
a philosopher or an engineer or a politician. Um, they seem to lack stable goals and beliefs of their own, which suggests a certain a lack of a certain unity uh, to which many people think consciousness requires more unity. But again, that said, um, you know, there's a lot of things to say about this, but there is a whole emerging literature on like agent modeling or person modeling where you develop these systems. At the very least, it's not very it's very easy to fine tune these systems to uh, to act more like a single individual. But there are projects of you know trying to train some of these systems from the ground up to model a certain individual, and that's certainly that's certainly coming. Perhaps some reason to think those systems will be more unified. Okay, so then um, if you look at those six reasons against. It's okay. Some of them are actually reasonably strong and plausible requirements for consciousness, and it's reasonably plausible that current language models lack them. I think especially the last three I view as quite strong. That said, all of those reasons look quite temporary. We're already developing models with global workspace. Recurrent language models exist and are going to be developed further. Um, more unified models. There's a clear research program there. So it's interesting to me that the strongest reasons all look fairly temporary. So just to sum up my analysis, are current language models conscious? Well, no conclusive reasons against this, despite what Google says, but still there are some strong reasons, reasonably strong reasons, to deny that they're conscious, corresponding to those requirements. And I think it would not be unreasonable to have fairly low confidence that current language models are conscious. But looking ahead, 10 years, to, well, it was 2032 when I gave the talk, I guess now 2033, um, Will, uh, will future language models and their extensions be conscious? I think there's good reason to think they may well have overcome the most significant and obstacle op and obvious obstacles to conscious. So I think it would be reasonable at least to have somewhat higher credence. When asked to, you know, you shouldn't be ser too serious with numbers on these things, but when asked to put a, a number on this, I'd say I'm at least, yeah, I think there's at least, say, a 20% chance that we'll have conscious AI by 2032. And if so, that'll be quite Significant. So conclusion, questions about AI consciousness are not going away. Within 10 years, even if we don't have human-level AGI, we'll have systems that are serious candidates for, conscious, for consciousness. And meeting the challenges to consciousness in language models uh, could actually yield a potential roadmap to conscious AI. And actually, here I laid out in the longer version of the paper a, uh, um, something of a roadmap. I mean, there are some philosophical challenges to be overcome, better evidence, better theory, better interpretability, the ethics is all important, but also some technical challenges. Uh, rich models in virtual worlds, with robust world models, with genuine memory and recurrence, global workspace, unified person models, and so on. But you just said we had, we actually overcame those challenges. All of these challenges look eminently, uh, eminently doable, if not done within the next decade or so. Just say by within a decade we've got some system. It doesn't have to be human-level AGI. Let's say mouse-level capacities um, showing all of these features. Then question, would that actually be enough for consciousness? Um, you know, many people will say no. But then the question is, well, if those systems are not conscious, what's missing? I think at that point we have to take this very seriously. And by the way, we do need to think very, very seriously about the ethical question about whether it's actually okay for us to pursue. I'm not necessarily recommending 
this, uh, this research program. Um, it's a very serious ethical question. Um, you know, if in developing conscious AI, may we lead to harms, may lead to harms to human beings, may also lead to harms to these AI systems themselves. So I think um, there needs to be a lot of reflection about these ethical questions and philosophers as well as AI researchers in the broader community um, are gonna have to think about that very hard, so thanks. Unfortunately, our AI voice enhancer couldn't bring clarity to much of this Q&A section, so I'll interject to summarize the questions. Uh, I guess I was just wondering why you thought the unified agency was the strongest thing that was missing. Um, and so one reason you might not think of that is um, if you think of like uh, Netlock's and Bubbles machine, which had a unified agency, right? So it was just modeled after this and Bubbles, but it was, there was no reason to think I was conscious. Okay, so this uh, Aunt Bubbles machine, also sometimes known as Blockhead, after my, my colleague Ned Block, who invented it, basically stores every possible conversation that one might have with, I guess, one's Aunt Bubbles. Um, and just, you know, once it gets to like step 40 of the conversation, it looks over the entire history of the conversation, looks up the right answer, and, uh, and gives it. I mean, totally impossible to create a system like this. It would require a combinatorial uh, explosion of, uh, of memory, but uh, Ned used this to argue that systems, a system could pass the Turing test, this system could pass the Turing test, but it quite clearly would not be conscious or intelligent. Now Jake is suggesting that a system like this might nevertheless be unified, well unified in the very weak sense of being based on a certain individual, but I think if you actually look at its, uh, at its processing, it looks extremely disunified to me. It's actually massively fragmented, it's got a separate mechanism for every, every single conversation. So I don't see the kind of mechanisms of integration there that philosophers have standardly required for a unity of consciousness. It does bring up many interesting questions about what kind of unity is required for consciousness, and there's no easy answer to that. Okay, um, this may sound like a simple question, but if an entity presented as intelligent, we would probably call it intelligence. The speaker asks, what does it take to determine whether an entity is conscious? Well, there's never any guarantee with consciousness. You know, philosophers have argued that we can at least imagine beings who are behaviorally, maybe even physically, just like a human being, but who are not conscious. So even when I'm interacting with you, you may give every sign of, of consciousness. But at least the philosophical question arises, are you conscious? Or are you a philosophical zombie? A system that lacks consciousness entirely. With other people, we're usually prepared to extend the benefit of the doubt. You know, other people are enough like us biologically, evolutionarily, that you know, when they behave consciously and say they're conscious, then we've got pretty good, if, if not totally conclusive reasons, to think they are. Now, once it comes to an AI system, well, they're unlike, their behavior may be like, a, uh, like that of a human being, but they may still be unlike us in various ways. They're in, the internal processing of a large language model is extremely different from that in a brain. It's not just carbon versus silicon. It's like the whole architecture is different and the behavior is different. So the, so the reasons are gonna be weaker. At this point, I think, this is why you actually need to start looking inside the system, going beyond behavior to think about what the processes are. Let's look at our leading current theories of consciousness, what they require for consciousness. Global workspace, world model, perhaps recurrence, perhaps some kind of unity. If we can actually find all of that in addition, 
to the behavior. I then give that very serious, um, very serious weight. Let's just say, look, it's still not conclusive proof that a system is conscious, but if you can do all that, and then someone says it's not conscious, then at that point I think I can reasonably ask them, what do you take to be, take to be missing? Thanks, David. Um, I think I want to go back to maybe your second slide. Uh, you had several bullet points there. My question was more about affective mechanisms and cognition. So um, I, I just want to delve in and see your thoughts on affect and how it relates, because, you know, of course, I think that's the missing piece, uh, you know, in unified agency, because that agent has to be interested or repulsed by something. Uh, like if you want to take an example of a lab scenario, say it's been uh, comes in every day wearing a blue shirt, and Sophia sees that, maybe she has a positive response to that, or the inverse of it, if it had an embodiment of cognition, that maybe is repulsed by a certain color or something random in the environment, you know. So affect is what drives us, you know, like what causes interest in us. The AI is not committed to saying, you know, I'm conscious or not conscious, it's the same to it. But what would, what would be a driving factor? What would be affective mechanisms? What would they look like in the setting? of AI, and I think this might be to something that Carlos was talking about the other day with, uh, there has to be something at stake for the agent. Otherwise, you know, something like that links to vulnerability, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. And affective experience is obviously extremely central to human consciousness. I've actually argued that it's not absolutely central to consciousness in general. There could be, uh, there could be a conscious being with little or no affective experience. I mean, we already know human beings with wider and narrower affective range, but uh, while getting into thought experiments, I like, quite like the thought experiment of the, uh, I think we were talking the other night about the philosophical Vulcan, uh, inspired by Spock from, uh, from Star Trek, who was supposed to lack emotions. I mean, Spock was a terrible example because he was half human and often got emotional and they go through, even Vulcans go through Ponfar every few years. However, a philosophical Vulcan is a purer case. Conscious being sees hears, thinks, reasons, but never has an affective state. I think that's perfectly coherent. Humans aren't like that, but I think, it's, I think that's coherent. I think that, I've argued, a being like that would still have moral status. So affect, suffering, is not the be-all and end-all for moral status. That said, affect is very crucial for us. What, I mean, what would drive a philosophical Vulcan to do what they do? Not their affective states, not feelings of happiness and, uh, and frustration and so on. Rather, I think it would be more of like a the kind of creature described by Immanuel Kant, who has these kind of colder, you know, goals and desires, it could still want to advance science and protect its family and so on in the absence of affect. So I think it would be possible, even if we didn't have good mechanisms for affective experience in AI, I think we could still quite possibly design a conscious AI. That said, one very natural route to conscious AI is to, uh, is to try and build in affect, states like pain and pleasure. And here it's actually, as far as I can tell, first, we don't actually understand the computational mechanisms of affect at all well, even in humans. And we, there is not a standard computational story to be told about affective experience in AI. I know a few people who are thinking about this who have their own story. So it's a bit of a mystery uh, right now exactly how best to build in affect. That said, there are a whole bunch of different hypotheses. And I think it's one very, very interesting route. Carla. I wonder what you think about this uh, thing that I find interesting, this asymmetry, that uh, you were talking about mouse-level consciousness, and we're all like, oh my god, if that happens, we need to hire lawyers and do these things. 
this, I mean, what do you think about this asymmetry that we, you know, as creatures that most of us think are conscious, uh, should fall within the moral protections uh, that we don't give them? Yeah, I mean, I think any, my own view is that any conscious being at least deserves moral consideration. So I think absolutely mice deserve moral consideration. Now, exactly how much moral consideration that's itself a huge issue in its own right. Probably not as much moral consideration as a human being. Um, that is probably some. I mean, I don't know, you know to, even a scientist running a lab where they put mice through all kinds of things, I think they at least give the mice some moral consideration. They probably try not, and make them, try not to make the mice suffer totally gratuitously. Um, even that's a sign of, of some moral consideration. That said, they may be willing to put them through all kinds of suffering when it's scientifically useful, which means they're not giving them that much moral consideration. And I'm very prepared to believe we should give mice and fish and many animals much more moral consideration um, than we do. Exactly what the right level is, I, I have, I don't really know. Um, but yeah, for AI, and I think much of the same goes for AI. Maybe initially we'll have AI systems with the kind of something like, maybe, I don't think it's out of the question that conscious AIs could have something like the uh, current AI systems have something like the conscious experience of you know, a worm or maybe even a fish or, or, uh, or something like this, and thereby already deserve some moral consideration. That said, it's not with AIs, unlike, say, mice. Well, I guess in flowers from Algernon, the mouse gets to be very smart very soon and suddenly reaches human-level intelligence. Um, doesn't happen with real mice, but with AIs, you know, it's going to be one day mice, one day fish, next day mice, next day primates, next day humans. Um, and you know, obviously when the issue is really going to hit home is when we have AI systems as sophisticated in many ways as humans, such that we have reasons to think they have human level consciousness. I think at that point, look, I, I'm not at all confident that we're going to suddenly extend the kind of moral consideration we give to, uh, to humans, to AI systems, but I think there's a philosophical case that we should. May I jump in and follow up on that? That's such an interesting question because you could also envision a hybrid AI system, such as an animat, if you will, with a biological component as well as a non-biological component or a neuromorphic component and a non-neuromorphic component. Maybe you get something like the consciousness of a mouse, but super intelligence, right? I mean, we need to... I'm wondering if we should be more careful about a, assuming a correlation between level of consciousness and level of intelligence and what this issue does in the moral calculus of concern. Yeah, it's a great question. Do you want to throw that one? I know you wanted to throw it up into the audience at some point. <laughs> I'm, happy, I'm, happy, I'm happy to take on this one. I, think I want you to answer okay. first. Yeah, I agree. Con consciousness and intelligence are, to some degree, Dissociable. And I think that's especially so for, say, sensory consciousness, affective consciousness, and so on. On the other hand, cognitive consciousness, I am inclined to think, has got some strong correlation with, uh, with consciousness. Uh, relatively unintelligent systems, you know, a worm and so on, probably doesn't have much in the way of cognitive consciousness. Humans have far more developed cognitive consciousness. And even in sensory consciousness and affective consciousness, we have rich sensory and affective states. That's largely, I think, due in significant part to their interaction with, uh, with cognitive consciousness. And I'm inclined to think, people say, you know, Bentham said, what matters for animals is it can they talk, can they reason? No, it's can they suffer. 
I'm actually like maybe Bentham was a little bit too fast. It's like your know, reasoning and cognition is actually very important for uh, for moral status, and that I think does at least correlate with uh, with intelligence. But affect, on the other hand, yeah, maybe a mouse could be suffering hugely, um, and that that suffering ought to get weight in our considerations to some degree independent of intelligence. I think her um, from theories of everything, who is the co-MC is going to jump in now with a question. Is that sure, right? Sure. Okay. Is it all right if Valerie answers one question? Because I know that she has one that's been burning. A burning question. Go. My question is, Charlie, well, what we hypnotized? Because when you hypnotize a person, you're going into the subconscious getting information to bring it forward to see what's for the assignments. What's your view? That is a great question. I have no idea about the answer, but maybe someone here does. Anyone, anyone hypnotized an AI system? <laughs> um, there are people who have done simulations of the conscious and the unconscious. You know any AI system simulating the Freudian unconscious, Claudia? Someone should be doing this for sure. This, this reminds me, though, of issues involving testing machine consciousness, and it reminds me of, for example, Ed Turner's, uh, and I guess it was sort of my view too, on writing a test for machine consciousness that was probing to see if there was the felt quality of experience. And actually think that cases of hypnosis, you know, if you could find uh, that kind of phenomenon at the level of machines, it could very well be an interesting indication that something was going on. But it leads us to a more general issue that we wanted to raise with the audience, which is what methodological requirements are appropriate for testing a machine and deciding whether a machine is conscious or not? And maybe I'll turn it over to Ed Turner for the first answer, and then back there, Ben Gertzel for the second. Awesome. Okay. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Let me just quickly say that the kind of meta idea behind the specific test that Susan and I published a few years ago is as follows. Since we can't directly detect felt experience, subjective experience. You might ask, what do <coughs> entities that have self-consciousness 
learn from that such experience, that they get new information from that experience uh, that isn't otherwise available to them. And if so, looking for that testing to see if they have that information would be an indirect way. It's a proxy for the experience space. And uh, I think we use this with people a great deal. Uh, and the example that Susan and I turned to was almost everyone understands very easily ideas like reincarnation, ghosts, out-of-body experiences, life after death, because from their felt experience, they perceive themselves as existing in, in, as an entity that has experience uh, as, and as different from a physical object. So if you say to someone, you know, after you die, you'll be reincarnated in the new body, that makes sense to people like that. If you say to them, after you die, your son will be reincarnated, that sounds incoherent, and you have to explain a lot what you could possibly uh, mean from that. And for a variety of human experiences, you know, uh, the felt experience of things like a broken heart in a romantic relationship, a culture shock, an anxiety attack, synesthesia is a little more um, exotic. If you're talking to someone, if you've had one of those experiences, and you speak to someone who has not had them, or who has, has also had them, you can tell the difference very quickly. They, they get it if they've already had the experience, and you can go ahead and talk about what it's like to have an anxiety attack or whatever. If not, you have a lot of explaining to do to get them to understand what you're talking about. And so the sort of structure of the type of test that um, Susan and I proposed was that you isolate the machine from any information about what people say about their felt experience and then try to get them to understand you know, some of these concepts. Thank you, Ed. And now, Ben Gertful, I had a comment as well. Uh, yeah, I've, I've thought about this topic in a fair bit, and the partial solution I've come up with, we can't do brain-to-brain or brain-to-machine interfacing. So I, I think, I mean, very broadly speaking, people talk about first-person experience, your subjective feel of being yourself, second-person experience, which is more like a Boomerian eye-bow experience, is directly perceiving the, the mind of, of, of another person. That third-person experience, which is sort of objectivist, like shared experience in the physical realm. What's interesting when you think about the so-called hard problem of consciousness is your, the contrast to first-person experience, which is your subjective, innerly felt quality, with science, which in essence is about like a group of minds, you know, commonly agreeing that a certain item of data is in the shared perception of everyone in, in that community. Once we can sort of wire Wi-Fi our, our brains together, let's say that I could wire my brain and the brain of this, this gentleman right here, it'd be an amazing experience, right? And you can increase the bandwidth of that wire. Then when we feel like we were conjoined twins, it seems, it seems like this sort of technology, which is, is probably not super, super far off, it feels like this gives a different, it gives a, 
a different dimension of view, it is in some ways bypassing the hard problem of consciousness, although not, not actually solving it, because it, it brings into the domain of shared agreed perception, a sense of the subjective feel of another person's consciousness. I feel this has existed in a less advanced form in the history of Buddhism and various spiritual traditions, where people are following common meditation protocols and psychedelic protocols, and they, they then have, they have the sense that they're co-experiencing among the lines of other, other people there. Ben, that is fascinating. And, you know, I've been telling my students about the cranial pancreas twin case. I don't know if you know about that conjoined twins in Canada who have a thalamic bridge. Wow. It's a novel anatomical structure that we don't have it in nature, as far as I know, previous to this, or at least documented it. And of course, everybody wants to study them. The parents are very protective, however, but it's well documented. They don't face each other, even though they're conjoined, that when one eats peanut butter, she'll do it to drive her twin crazy. Uh, because the other one needs the flavor. So they have a shared conscious experience. And of course, philosophers will have a lot of fun with that as well, you know, in relation to privacy. But I also think it's very suggestive along the lines of what you just raised, right? And I wanted to bring that over to Dave Chalmers and see what your reaction is to Ben's point. Oh, uh, you know, I love the idea of mind merging. Uh, as a test for consciousness, I'm not totally convinced because, of course, you could you could mind merge with a zombie, and from the uh, from the first person perspective, it would still feel great. Um, you could probably you could probably mind merge with GPT four, and it would be pretty. Since, so your hypothesis is. Ben asks, if you mind merged with a philosophical zombie, could it feel the same as mind merging with a fully conscious being? Kind of mind merging I'm having in mind. It's like we're still there's still two minds here, right? I mean, I'm experiencing. I'm still me, experiencing. You. So it's really, you know, you're, I'm a conscious being already, and this is having massive effects on my consciousness. You know, psychedelic drugs can have massive effects on my conscious, consciousness without themselves being, con without themselves being you conscious. Your brain, you don't feel like yeah. So you have the idea of merging into to become one common mind. Yeah. I would still worry that a conscious being and an unconscious being could merge into one unified, freaky conscious mind. I think it would feel different though than merging. Yeah, yep. not, but now we need the criteria for which which distinctive feelings are actually the feelings that track the other being. The other version I like is gradually turning yourself into that being. You know, I mean, the classic version is you replace your neurons by silicon chips in the same organization, but maybe you gradually transform yourself into the AI. So you gradually transform yourself into a transformer and learn that simulation of yourself. That, 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 that may be extreme, but hey, yeah, the other end you get a system which says I'm conscious. And maybe for that one brief moment, you have evidence that you're conscious, but, but maybe you can't convince anybody else of this. They're gonna say, ah, oh, you're a mere transformer neural network. And you transform yourself back and say, I remember being conscious back then, but to which some people are gonna say, but how do you know you're not just a zombie who left memories of being conscious? <laughs> so if we could do these things, it would be, it would be amazing. And we'd be arguing about the evidence for a long time. So I hope someone does this eventually. Okay, so this question is to everyone. If we could build the conscious AIs, the question still remains, should we? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, someone other than Ben. <laughs> if we can, we will. 
But should we? From an ethical standpoint, should we? We have so many people suffering on this planet already. (laughs) Stephanie asks, if we build conscious AI, how do we manage their empathy? Stephanie's point is an excellent one. So, you know, if we build conscious AI, how do we know it won't be a sociopath? How do we know that it will be empathetic and treat us well, right? I mean, we would obviously have to test the impact of consciousness on different AI systems and not make any uh, assumptions that just because in the context of one AI architecture, the machine is generous and kind, that in the context of other machine architectures, it will also be kind. We'll have to bear in mind that machines constantly update their architecture when they become super intelligent. I think somebody else had their hand up too, though. Let's pass it down to our new friend from the University of Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, so I have a very quick novel argument as to why we should build conscious and super-intelligent AI, right? So if we build conscious or super-intelligent AI, right, then it might as well be omniscient, right? If it is as super-intelligent as we might imagine it being in a singularity, then it will might as well be omniscient. Now, if it's omniscient and it's all-knowing, it follows that it's also omnipotent, right? Because if you know everything, then you know how to do everything. Right? It's all knowledge, practical or theoretical. Now, if it's omniscient and all-powerful or omnipotent, the other thing that's left is omnibenevolent, right? Because if we are conscient about morality, then the more rational we are, the more moral we are, right? And if we're utilitarians about morality, then we're better at figuring out how to maximize utility if we are more rational for we have better calculative ability. So whether or not you're a Kantian or a utilitarian, it still follows that the more rational you are, the more capacity you have to be moral, right? And we'll be designing what we've always traditionally have thought of as divinity. And if it's omnibenevolence, which follows from omniscience, then why not, right? It will bring about the right moral state, or I guess the right moral conditions for all of us to thrive. So that's my quick argument. Thank you very much, Sophia. That was really interesting. So he was alluding to a lot of issues in theology about the definition of God, very suggestive. So, you know, one thing I want to point out, and we just have to move on really quickly, though, is just because a machine is super intelligent, it does not at all entail that it's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-endowed, right? Super intelligence is defined as simply outsmarting humans, any single human in every respect, scientific reasoning, social skills, and more. But it does not at all entail that that entity has the classic traits in the Judeo-Christian tradition of God. Okay, so that said, let me turn to our next question. And again, this is for the audience. Um, So going back to Dave's wonderful paper, which really got things going. um, So one thing I was very curious about as I was hearing this, and as I watched the whole uh, Blake Lemoyne mess unfold, I sort of wondered what was going on. And I started to go down the rabbit hole and listening to Lemoyne's uh, podcasting, where he's invited on a lot of shows and just listening to the details of his 
interaction with Google behind the scenes. So one thing that he reports is that they had a reading group over at Google, some very smart engineers who were designing Lambda, and they were studying philosophy. So over there, they were reading Daniel Dennett on consciousness, David Chalmers, and so on, studying it. I thought that was cool. I thought that was really cool. And the interesting thing, too, was in the media, um, Lemoyne was characterized as being somewhat of a religious fanatic. But if you listen to the reasons he provided, he was a computational functionalist who had been reading a lot of Daniel Dennett. His argumentation was straight from consciousness and related texts. So what I have as a question for everybody is, Given Google's reaction to the whole thing, which to, to, was to sort of silence the debate and laugh at Lemoyne, I'm wondering why would Google and maybe other big tech companies not want to discuss the issue of large language model consciousness? I'll just put that to the audience to see if there are any ideas. Thanks. I, if I can, would like to go back to the question you raised about should we? idea. And I, I come from this as a retired surgeon and now doing bioethics for 30 years. I've been involved recently in changes in genetics and the technology that's available for that than I am with the computer uh, field. But they're not completely separate. And I'm reminded of the period of eugenics in, in the world and in our country where very powerful people had this belief that they could improve the species and make humans better with technology. And in retrospect, they were horribly misguided, uh, doing things from sterilization and integration. And need to remember that these well-intentioned but misguided people, and you want to learn some humility. Thank you. Now back to Kurt. Sure. So I have, hello, hello. I have two questions. I'll sneak in. So my question is, what questions are we not asking about AI? For instance, we have plenty of talk here about ethics, consciousness. But what else is there that we're not focusing on that's just as exigent, more interesting? So that's question number one. And question number two is, are we overly concerned with type one errors of the material test at the expense of type two? So that is, are we making the test so stringent that we allow ourselves to categorize some conscious machines as unconscious? But do we care about Unfortunately, the answers to my last question became garbled, and so we're not able to hear the two audience members' responses. So feel free to add your own answers in the comment section below. The episode is now over. If you liked this one, then one that I recommend is the Yosha Bach and Ben Gortzel one because it touches AI and consciousness as well as AGI timelines. The links to that are in the description as well as all of the other talks from MindFest, that is where this conference took place, at the Florida Atlantic State University Center for the Future Mind, focusing on the AI and consciousness connection. We've been having issues monetizing the channel with sponsorship, so if you'd like to contribute to the continuation of Theories of Everything, then you can donate through PayPal, Patreon, or through cryptocurrency. Your support goes a long way in ensuring the longevity and quality of this channel. Thank you. Links are in the description. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like 
helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything, where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in Theories of Everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, Toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash Kurt Jimungle and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.